Well, good morning. If you want to turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 1, that's where we'll camp out. But before we do that, uh, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, Some of you might not have been here the last time. That would have been November, somewhere in November. And so I really do appreciate the session here bringing me back and a privilege to teach and preach from God's Word. And, you know, I was telling someone the other day, they've asked the question, how do you pick a text when it's just kind of once uh, a one-off? And, uh, well, there's a story. So if you see that there's Mark 1, let me tell you a little bit of a story about John Calvin. I would assume you probably heard that name before. It was said of Calvin when he was exiled from Geneva. He was in a certain series, and he was exiled for three years. And so when he came back, he was so committed to expository preaching, he opened his Bible, and the very first sermon was the next verse from three years ago. And so he just began to preach again. And I thought, you know, if Calvin can do that, I should probably try that. Uh, And so if you're wondering why are we back in Mark, there's no more rationale than the fact that that's where we were last time. And so uh, Lord willing, we'll never finish the gospel of Mark uh, because you've got a new pastor and and we'll leave that task up to him. Well, before we read read God's word together, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you have called us to worship this morning. We remember the words from Isaiah 55 that we are to come without money. For those who are hungry and those who are thirsty, we are to come and seek the Lord while he may be found. And yet providentially, O Lord, Isaiah would answer how to do that. Just a few verses later, he's going to remind us that our thoughts are not your thoughts and Your ways are not our ways. And even following that as rain and snow would come to nourish and replenish the earth, so does Your Word that it would come accomplishing the purpose in which You sent it. And then You remind us with a word picture that out of it, the thorn would become a cypress, the briar a myrtle, and we are taught that Your Word of truth organically changes us. And so, O oh God, we would pray that same truth this morning, that You would, O oh, speak through Your Word, for Your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read God's Word together, looking in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Well, this is God's holy and inerrant word, and may he add his blessing to all who would hear it this day. Humble beginnings. 
verse 14, let me kind of bring you into some context. We want to kind of paint the context again of where we are in Mark, but then there's something unique about verse 14 that I think you and I need to know. If you were here with us last time, we, we asked this question, who is Jesus? And, and the answer in which Mark gives us this summary, this prologue, you might say in verses 13 is, well, he's the son of God. He came to save his people and he knows suffering. And so you could imagine these Gentiles who have undergone such persecution, they're kind of on the edge of their seat. You've just painted this grand picture of who Jesus is and they're so excited because what could happen next? It, it's got to be some takeoff. The kingdom's about to explode. And yet, that's not what verse 14 says, is it? It's not some worst to first. It's not some rags to riches. Actually, what it is, is it's the fulfillment that God has already promised Israel. Isn't that what we read in Isaiah chapter 60? That the least of you shall become a thousand. The smallest, a mighty nation. I am the Lord. And in its time, I will do it swiftly. And so when we look at the kingdom of God, we look at what should be taking place. It's not this grand opening. Rather, it's quite humble, isn't it? Now, how are you and I to know that? Well, when you look in verse 14, you see when we read our Bibles... We just read 13 and then we go to 14. That's not exactly how it would have happened in history. From 13 to 14, you're looking about a year has passed. So at the close of 13, when we read, And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And then you pick up in verse 14, and Mark says, Now after John was arrested, that took about a year between those two verses. What has taken place in a year well it says that jesus came into galilee what are you and i to make of that it's not as though jesus has first come into galilee no he's been to galilee he's left he's gone to jerusalem he went to the passover and he came back and he went through samaria and he had that conversation with the samaritan woman you read about all of this in the gospel of john and so mark is trying to draw your attention because he gives you a placeholder doesn't he he says now after John, John the Baptist that is, was arrested. Why is Mark doing that? What's the point? Well, at the imprisonment of John the Baptist is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And so what Mark is telling you is there's been a year and maybe you and I are thinking, my goodness, that's a long time considering the life of Jesus. 30 years you mean it took 30 years to get this thing off the ground? Maybe you even just think about Jesus as his person. What happened a year ago? Well, he was baptized in the River Jordan. So a year from then, what are, what are we to make of such a time period? God's not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry. He's not building his kingdom like you and I might build our businesses. He's not about this get big, get fast. And what he's telling you very early on is, well, God's kingdom is not of this world. And therefore, to build it will not be built upon principles of this world. I am the Lord. And in its time, I will do it swiftly. And so, what you learn here is Jesus 
is bringing forth and he's about to explain what is the kingdom of God. Two points this morning. Jesus' message and Jesus' men. Look with me at verses 14 to 15. Jesus' message. Do you see what he says? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's different features here that we could look at when we dissect this message that Jesus begins the kingdom on. A question we ought to ask, well, whose message is it? Did you catch how Mark records that for us? Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. You can see it in English and you can see it in Greek. It's possessive. It's trying to tell you it's not the one, the one who's speaking it is not the owner of it. This is not some new message in which John the Baptist came up with on his own. No, what Jesus is saying is he is saying the word that he has already received from the Father. God owns it. He's the author of it. And Jesus is now proclaiming it to the world. The kingdom of God. And then he goes on to tell you, from Jesus' mouth, the time is fulfilled. Now that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but I want to draw your attention to how important that statement is. When we read the time is fulfilled, the point of what Mark is trying to tell you is this is a turning point. This is drastic. This is big. And your attention, my attention, ought to be drawn into it. When he says the time is fulfilled, there's two Greek words for the use of time. You've got chronos and kairos. Now, you could go ahead and imagine what some of those words might mean. Chronos, we get the English word chronology, right? Moment by moment. Kairos, it's meant to be more of a significant turning point. It's a defining moment in which whatever happens afterwards is drastically different than before. How do you and I know something like that? Well, we have placeholders that we call things like B.C., before Christ. Then A.D., the year of our Lord. You see what Mark is doing here. The word time in Greek is kairos. He's not trying to give you a chronology of things. He's telling you what has just taken place is a turning point in all of history. And isn't it fantastic that at the birth of Christ, we get that. That when God in flesh comes to the world, it changes the course of history. And so what we find out here, consider it this way. Uh, if you were to look in Luke's gospel, don't turn there. When you understand this idea of the time is fulfilled, there's this recording in Luke in which Jesus enters the synagogue and he grabs the, uh, the scrolls and he's going to read from Isaiah 61. And this is what he reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you were to continue reading, what you're going to notice is Jesus finishes. He, go, he wraps the scroll back up, hands it over, and sits down, and the people are kind of like, what? And so they look at him, and this is what Jesus says to them. Today, the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I want you to take note. What is Mark doing here? Jesus' earthly ministry has just started. 
the time has been fulfilled. There's a turning point now that Jesus is opening His mouth and ushering in His kingdom. And what do we read? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's this unfolding nature. And when the kingdom of God comes, it comes in the form of a person. Here's the Lord Jesus. And so what He's he's giving us is this message that rests upon Him. For it to be some kairos moment, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Himself. This change, this significant point in history is looking at the person of Jesus. And do you see how He begins it? The kingdom of God is at hand. Why is that important to you and I who live in America? Because what He's saying is the message is about the kingdom of God. Do you notice what He doesn't say? It's not about you and God. This is not a me and God kind of thing. This is a corporate, this is a communal message. This is to bring forth all of God's people into God's kingdom. It's not just some individual focus. Yes, there are individual applications to be drawn. But the focus of the message is not on the individual. It's on all of God's people. And he's calling forth all of them. And he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And you and I know that. Because you and I recite that prayer, don't we? The prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. And what's that phrase that we say? Thy kingdom come. Now there's something beautiful about that, isn't it? Because Jesus has just told you the kingdom of God is at hand. I am here. And so when we pray that, there's kind of this, yes, it's happened, and no, it hasn't. There's the already and the not yet. Lord, we want to see you bring forth your reign over all creation, over all mankind. And you have done that to an extent. Continue that work, Lord Jesus. Bring forth more of your kingdom until the day in which you return and all things are made new. Thy kingdom come. And so there's this sense in Jesus is saying, here I am. I have brought the kingdom here. Pay attention. Here's the turning point. And then he gets into his message very specifically, doesn't he? What does he say? Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, because the kingdom of God is at hand, the king has shown up. A change is needed, isn't it? Don't you find it fascinating that the very first words of this message, repent and believe. You see what Jesus is saying is when the king shows up, indifference isn't an option. You receive it or you reject it. But this kingdom is going to be about men and women who repent and believe in him. And that's the problem with the message for you and me. There's no wrong error There's nothing erroneous about what he is saying. The error lies within us. We don't want to hear that message that says repent. Because you and I know what that word means, don't we? It means we have to turn from our sinful lifestyle. It means we have to turn from our desires. And we have to trust or we have to submit to Jesus. It's a focus that says you and I have messed up. And we have to come to terms with that. We don't get to just be excited that the king is here. No, the king is representing something that you and I don't. We have sin, and it has to be dealt with. You do not get to stand in this king's presence without a different record. And so he's saying, if you want to be there, it's repent and believe. It's not a call in which he's saying, 
get up, clean up, and come to me. No, rather he's saying repent. Repenting does not mean clean yourself up. Repenting is the acknowledgement that you have gone the wrong way and you have to trust in something different. There's one commentator who says this about the kingdom of God in light of repentance. We may reach heaven without learning or riches or health or worldly greatness, but we shall never reach heaven if we die without repentance and faith. You see, it's something so simple, isn't it? But so hard to do. Something so simple, yet so hard. Why? Why is it so hard? I think because we would like it to go like this. Danny made a mistake. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. And I would like that to be the case, that I don't do it again. The reality is, in the words of Martin Luther, we live a life of repentance. We don't get to say I'm sorry and assume it's not there anymore. There's a spiritual war going on. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, if you've heard of him, uh, recently said this. The question was asked, asked of him, how do you know if you've repented enough? What a big question to answer wisely as he is, said, well, there's, there's an element in which that's circumstantial. It depends on you and what's going on, and we would have to have a private conversation. But generally speaking, how do you know if you've repented enough? I love his answer. He says, you've suffered sufficiently when you desire Christ more than that sin. You, you see, that's repentance. It's the turning away from one master to the true master And what we want is some immediate gratification, and that's just not how it works. Consider repentance like this. You've got a man who walks, a man who's riding a bike, a man who drives a car, and a man who drives a boat. Now, the same situation for all of them. They recognize the direction they're going is the wrong one. And so, logically, they're all going to stop and turn around. Now, consider how that happens. Well... If you're walking and you recognize you've walked the wrong way, you can immediately stop, immediately turn around, and go the right way. If you're riding a bike and you figure out you're going the wrong way, you can pretty quickly stop, fairly quickly turn the bike around, and get started again. Same with the car. You can slam on the brakes. It might take you a little bit longer to do the U-turn, and then eventually the car will speed back up. How about a boat? When a boat figures out it's going the wrong way, the amount of effort it takes for that boat to stop, turn around, and get back up to speed again. What's the point? That's the picture of repentance. You see, we're all going to have different fruits of it. We're not in control of it. The point is recognizing you have gone the wrong way, stop and turn around. But you can't just immediately expect some kind of righteous behavior right away. It doesn't work that way. It's a gift of grace by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what repentance looks like, is we recognize we've gone the wrong way. But what we're not in control of is that we're going to produce some fruit immediately. We trust in the king of the kingdom to do that very work. Now, why is that important? Because I want you to see this second point. If the message of the kingdom is repent and believe, did you catch who he starts with? Jesus' men, look in verses 16 to 20. 
Let's read one more time so we have some context. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What happens? Well, Jesus sees Simon, later to be called Peter, and his brother Andrew as they're fishing. Now, you and I might be tempted to think this is the first time in which Jesus saw Simon. That's not true. No, he's met them before. Do you remember that story in John? They were disciples of John the Baptist, and they, and they were worried. Well, who is this guy over here baptizing people? Isn't that your job? And so what do you catch when Jesus comes out to meet them and say, drop your stuff, come with me? Well, these men have known of Jesus for over a year. Now, why is that important to you and I? Because every time you share the gospel, it's not as though people come to Christ immediately. When we talk about coming to faith, what we're not saying is take a leap of faith. Shelve your brain. No, no, no. You see, Jesus has already called them. And it's taken about a year's time for them to get the idea and the picture, the conviction of who is Jesus. It's not a close your eyes and jump. No, there's careful consideration that has taken place. And so Jesus calls them. He calls two sets of brothers, four fishermen. And it's important to note this because I think we often overlook who Jesus did call and who Jesus didn't. You do remember Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry, and he's using four fishermen. Did you see who he's not using? Four doctors, four lawyers, four politicians, four teachers, four priests, four rabbis. He's using four Gentile fishermen. Why? Why would Jesus use Gentile fishermen? And you and I have probably been trained to consider them. Isn't that what Acts tells you? That these are uneducated, ordinary men? I'd like to correct a fallacy there. When we say that they're uneducated, we're not saying they're losers. We're not saying they're fools. We're not saying they don't know what they're doing. Did you not see what Mark told you about them? These are wise fishermen. How do you know that? They have a thriving business. Because they can leave their father in the boat and the hired servants that are there. They have tools of the trade during that time. No, they don't have four doctors. They're not acquainted with every Jewish teaching. But what they do know how to do is fish. So when everything goes haywire, they know how to survive. These are not foolish men. No, what they are are faithful men. They're hardworking men. They're men of character. And that's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for faithful men and women do you sometimes struggle with that how could Jesus use me what kind of gifts do I have or look at my past I'm a nobody you see the point is what Jesus is doing is he's showing you you might be worth far more in the kingdom of God than what culture and society tells you you're worth Jesus can take anybody and make him a spiritual leader. Jesus can take anybody 
and bring life into them. And that's who Jesus begins his ministry with, his four fishermen. Why is that important? A.W. Tozer, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, I think he's got a fantastic quote in light of this. A.W. Tozer, the greatest degree he has is high school. Now, if you've ever read his readings, you might argue with him on that. It's very hard to read. He's very sophisticated. But here's what he says. I feel sorry for the church that decides to call a pastor because his personality simply sparkles. I've watched quite a few of those sparklers through the years. In reality, as every kid knows, at 4th of July time, sparklers can be an excitement in the neighborhood, but only for about one minute. Then you are left holding a hot stick that quickly cools off in your hand. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's not looking for sparklers. He's looking for faithful men and faithful women because what he sees and what he can bring is different than what the world can and what the world can do. And so Jesus sees these four fishermen and he says, follow me. Now this is a, a, a radical idea. I don't know how much you know about this time, but the way that kind of if we could use the word internship or apprenticeship would have happened, students would go up to their master, their teacher, the one in which they want the internship or apprentice, and they would say, will you let me follow you? They would go after their teacher. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus went after the student. And in fact, he has said something radically to them that you don't even find in the Old Testament. Moses doesn't say it. The prophets don't say it. The kings don't say it. They might say walk in the ways of the Lord or follow his statutes, but only the Lord Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. It's radical. And why? Because there's no other one to have life in. And do you notice what has happened when he says that? Do you know what hadn't happened? All these crazy miracles that you and I love. All of these great debates with the Pharisees that you and I enjoy to hear. There's been no persuasion. There's no strategy. There's no tactic. It's just a follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Why is that important? Because what it means to follow Christ is not some prerequisite eight-week training program. You don't have to take some theological exam at the end and past to come to Christ. What it means is I love Jesus more than I love my life. I love Jesus more than I love my sin. And I will follow you. And that can only be done through repentance and faith. And so Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Did you see what that kind of the cost is on that call? He says, follow me, and then he's, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Do you, don't you appreciate what he says? There's the guaranteed outcome that says, if you follow me, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. It's not an option. If you become a Christian, you will produce fruit. If you come to know Christ, you will be a witness to the Lord Jesus. It's, it's not an option, and that is an incredible encouragement to us this morning. If you know Christ, you could change the world by his grace. Do you believe that about you? That the more you eat and drink of Jesus, the world wants it. They hate it, and yet they want it. You have something that they desperately want, and they don't know how to get it. It's in your life. Don't separate yourself from the world. Go into it, and go into it 
with the Lord Jesus Himself. And so why use that language? Why would He say, come follow Me and I will make you become fishers of men? I understand the obvious answer. I will make you fishers of men. They are fishermen. That makes sense. That metaphor fits. But I actually think there's two reasons why he uses that metaphor. When he says, I will make you fishers of men, there are two reasons. The first is the Old Testament imagery. Have you ever considered that in the Old Testament you get the imagery of fishermen or fish? Let me read you a verse from the book of Amos. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take away, take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out and through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Do you know what the book of Amos is about? Judgment. It's about judgment. It's about people who want to indulge all of their selfish and sinful desires. And God is using this picture of fish as a form of judgment. And it's not the only place. Why is Jesus using this metaphor? Because he's telling these men, I am sending you on a rescue mission. Judgment is coming. This is a rescue mission. You are going to call people out of darkness and into life. That is what it means to follow Christ. You recognize now this is not a, a, a loss or a cost of livelihood. This is a cost of life. It is your reputation that hangs in the balance. Your status in society, potentially. And maybe your very life. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. Come, follow me. It will cost you your life, but I will make you fishers of men. It's a rescue mission. I think that's why he says that. There's a second reason I think he uses that metaphor. If you follow Jesus in the Gospels, he often talks in parables, and he uses metaphors in, in conjunction with evangelism, doesn't he? When talking to farmers, he talks about sowing seed. Sometimes in the area of shepherds, he talks about shepherding the flock. Why then would he talk to these men about fishing? They're already fishermen. They might already think, you have no idea what you're talking about. Here's why I think he uses that metaphor is because what he's going to tell them, Peter, I don't want you to go to some foreign place. I want you to go right back to Galilee. I want you to go right back into the world in which you live and play and breathe and work and bring the gospel there. That's why he's talking to fishermen about fish. I want you to go fish for men. I don't need you to go to Africa. I don't need you to go to Asia. I need you to go to Dallas, Georgia. There are people there who do not know Christ. Yes, we pray for and desperately need, and God calls missionaries to go overseas. You might even think about some of them. Hudson Taylor, John Patton, Amy Carmichael. There's several throughout the history of the church, but that does not mean it's the norm. No, what the norm is is, Danny, I've called you. Go back to Smyrna and share the gospel with the people who are around you. In fact, what it looked like for me, if you remember what I told you in November, it meant some guy entering my dorm without knocking and saying, do you want to play flag football? And that was his ticket to saying, do you want to know Jesus? 
It might mean then going down the office hallway to the next cubicle, the next office. It could be the classmate. It could be the family member. It could be the neighbor. And he's saying, I'm going to make you fishers of men where you are. Bring the gospel to bear where he's placed you. You don't need to think about how to go somewhere else. He has you here for a reason. So what do you do with that call? How do we wrestle through this passage? I think simply, the call this morning is to be uncomfortable. It's to be uncomfortable. And there's many ways to do that. One way is, have you grown comfortable to reading about Jesus that it no longer challenges you in your faith? Have you grown comfortable with God's Word that it no longer convicts you of sin? Have you grown comfortable with God's Word in which you no longer want to share it or read it or study it or sing it or even come to church for it? Have you grown comfortable with God? Or have you not been uncomfortable enough to even come at all? Are you so uncomfortable you've never even seen the face of Jesus? You have no idea who He is. On my way over this morning, my, my prayer was quite simple for this morning. God, could you make a chirotic if that's such a word, I just made it up. Chirotic moment. Could there be turning points in people's lives that whether it's from death to life or whether it's from comfort to uncomfort, help us, O oh God, trust You because You promised You would make us fishers of men. And that's really what this table is for, isn't it? It shows you the drastic change that takes place from death to life, from hungry to satisfied. But it's for people who want to be uncomfortable because this table tells you you and I have a problem and that the Lord Jesus Himself is the only solution. Could you then therefore trust the Lord to the extent that you say this morning, I no longer want to live a comfortable life. Make me a fisher of men. Let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, we thank You that in a world of formulas and high productivity, You have set Your kingdom up in this world yet entirely different. You have come to us rather than making us come to You. You have called out of us to put away ourselves and to put on Christ. Thank You, God, that because of Jesus and Your gracious call, that we might have life. And would we grow this morning then to be fishers of men, able and faithful people to participate in the ministry of reconciliation, the kingdom of God. And as we would prepare to come to this table, your table, help us, O Lord, even but momentarily become uncomfortable that we by faith would trust 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that He has done for us. And we pray in His name. Amen.